Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with the legendary Dr. Robert Wolf. Now, for those of you in the protein world and in the nutrition world, then Dr. Robert Wolf is no stranger to you. Dr. Wolf has served as faculty member at Harvard Medical School, and the focus of Dr. Wolf's 40 years of medical research has been primarily on aging, metabolism, and muscle performance. He has really, really done legacy-type work. He's published over 500 peer-reviewed articles, three books, and holds many active patents. In this episode of the show, we talk all about the potential use of individual amino acids, who should use a branched-chain amino acid versus an essential amino acid, and what kind of diet is most disruptive to metabolism. Is it high fat? Is it high carb? And finally, are you working hard enough to justify that large fruit smoothie you're about to have? As always, we appreciate your time. Please take a moment to leave a review comment, rate it, share it. We understand how precious your time is and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. One last thing, if you have not had a chance to head on over to my website, please head on over to drgabriellelyon.com. Check out the pre-order page of my book. We are offering a ton of free perks. So head on over to my website, check out the pre-order page and uh, check out all the free things that we are offering. All right, let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Cozy Earth. Let me just tell you, summer is hot and summer is really hot in Houston. I love my Cozy Earth sheets. I sleep really comfortably. I know exactly when I am not on Cozy Earth sheets because I am up, it is hot, the other sheets are sticky. I love Cozy Earth. They are soft and breathable. Temperature regulating sheets If you don't like it, they'll refund your purchase price plus shipping, no questions asked, and you get 100 nights to try out Cozy Earth Sheets. That's right, 100 nights. And why do they make that guarantee? Because Cozy Earth is amazing. And right now, friends, I'm so excited to tell you that in time for summer, you will get 40% off. That's right. 40% off, go to CozyEarth.com slash Dr. Lion and put in the code Dr. Lion at checkout. That's CozyEarth.com slash Dr. Lion or use the code Dr. Lion at checkout. I've been using these sheets for so long. You know, when I find a company I love, I really stick with it. Once you try these sheets, you will look forward to getting into bed. It's made from viscous, from bamboo. So it traps less heat. It's very breathable and it's so beautiful. CozyEarth.com slash Dr. Lion. A special thank you to One Farm for sponsoring this episode of the show. One Farm is a farm to supplement company that produces products designed to improve people's lives. They use whole organic ingredients sourced directly from the farmers that grow them. And let me just tell you, I have been using One Farm CBD for many years And now they have a gut health product, which is absolutely delicious. And it is a bone broth that has been enhanced with other botanicals, adaptogens to help support a healthy microbiome for more gut diversity, which we know is important. It's bone broth from grass-fed organic beef. It has garlic and onions from keen garlic that's grown organic, chamomile marshmallow, 
Again, these are all from very small family-run farms, which is incredible. One to two scoops in warm water, you drink the broth. It comes with or without CBD. And this month, One Farm is offering my listeners a free gut health superfood. All you have to do is pay $5 for shipping. Go to onefarm.com. That's O-N-E farm.com and put in the code LIONGH. That's LIONGH for gut health, of course. And you will get a free gut health superfood. Bob Wolf, I'm so excited to have you here, by the way. Do you know that I that your work has made some of the biggest impact on my trajectory in my career? <laughs> well, that's great to hear. I, uh, uh, you know, you're around long enough and there'll be somebody that uh, has listened to you. And uh, uh, it, it, you know, one of the things that uh, in my career, I had uh, over 50 postdocs and about 20 PhD students. And uh, one of the things that it involved a, a lot of hassle because the program in, in uh, metabolic physiology wasn't existent. So I had to start it and go through all the administrative hoops. But came to realize that, you know, by yourself, you can only do so much research and make whatever contribution you can. But, but through uh, influencing uh, other people, you have a much broader uh, chance of actually uh, making contact and influencing people. And so it, it's just great to hear that you actually had, that, that I had some impact on, on the direction that your work has gone. You have. You've actually had quite a significant impact. Um, so Don Lehman has trained me for the last 20 years. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Don has probably told you that we're very good friends. In fact, Don came down to Galveston when I was at UTMB for his sabbatical and we worked together then. So that's that's a small world. So it's uh, it's great. It's pretty amazing. There, um, you know, I, I have a lot of questions for you. But before I get into some of these questions, I really want to highlight some of the massive contributions that you have made in the scientific literature and really in the science space. Number one, stable isotopes. The way you've you really brought that to the forefront. This is the way that we look at metabolism. Um, so thank you for doing that. The other thing is, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the Randall hypothesis and you, so the Randall hypothesis, and I, I'm sorry that this may be a little technical for some of the listeners, but the glucose fatty acid cycle, you came out with a very pivotal paper in, I believe the nineties where you wrote about it, that really this glucose fatty acid cycle is that we've kind of got it wrong. And, and that was just so significant. And then finally, and certainly not in this order, your work has really inspired so many others that your paper, The Underappreciated Role of Muscle, has just inspired so many people. So thank you for all the massive contributions that you've had. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, that's, it's, that's very good to hear. But interestingly, I. Uh, and uh, we're just in the process of uh, doing a talk. I'm giving a talk in Korea in a, in a few, in um, a month or two, uh, plenary lecture at a, at a big metabolic meeting. And they sort of asked me to give a review of 50 years of research, which doesn't, you know, well, it's that definitely only a few highlights. But uh, one of the things that is interesting is that, that I sort of focused on the uh, Randall hypothesis because 
the glucose fatty acid cycle, I think people have always just blithely referred to that as uh, uh, like this is the way it is without really understanding exactly what controls the balance between fatty acid and glucose uh, metabolism. And uh, so I went through all the, in this talk, went through all the uh, background and research and realized that most of the people in the audience hadn't been born when I had uh, was doing that work. So it goes to show that hang around long enough and something, some things get appreciated. But uh, uh, thanks for bringing those points up because uh, it means a lot that, that they had an impact on you. Yeah. And I, and I think that by my goal at the end of this podcast is really for you to highlight some of this pivotal work that you have done because where you absolutely excel is in metabolism. As a metabolic researcher, you are exceptional. And with many researchers, your work is not necessarily accessible and you are not necessarily accessible to the general public. Um, and so there are the things that I really, uh, I think are so important, for example, this uh, glucose fatty acid cycle, can you explain a little bit about the, the Randall hypothesis, what its impact is if we believe that fats dominate metabolism versus glucose and, and kind of how that changes our perspective from the Randall hypothesis to the reverse, which is what you uh, highlighted and what that means to the listener, to the patient? Sure. Well, what uh, what the uh, the basic hypothesis put forth by Randall and Newsom back in 1963, based parenthetically purely on in vitro enzyme analysis, it wasn't ever any kind of metabolic study that led them to this conclusion. But the 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 general topic was what controls the balance between carbohydrate oxidation and fatty acid oxidation to to provide the metabolic energy to perform functions even like physical activity or just daily activity daily functions and their theory was that the availability of fatty acid dominated and that that as fatty acid levels became more abundant that this had an inhibitory effect on the oxidation of glucose and that as the uh, fatty acid levels decreased the glucose oxidation rose and we did a series of two fairly straightforward experiments in human subjects testing the hypothesis, in which case, one, we had uh, a high rate of carbohydrate oxidation dictated by glucose infusion, glucose intake, so that 100% of the energy was coming from fatty from glucose oxidation, and then had a 20-fold increase in fatty acid availability. And according to the theory, it should have inhibited glucose oxidation, but in fact, had no impact at all. And then we did the reverse, where we had normalized a high level of fatty acid oxidation by infusing a substance called intralipid, which is a lipid emulsion. And, and, and in that case, we raised the fatty acid concentrations to very high levels. And 100% of the oxidation balance between the two came from the oxidation of fat and then infused glucose. And as glucose was infused, there was a direct uh, inhibition of the fatty acid oxidation and uh, we followed that up with, with more mechanistic studies where we showed the exact uh, place in which our metabolic site where this occurred, that, that as uh, fatty acids are transported into the mitochondria, that the enzyme responsible for that is actually directly inhibited by glucose. 
so that not only was the general concept shown to be exactly the reverse, that the availability of glucose dictates the substrate of metabolism, but actually we demonstrated the specific side uh, of control. So that, uh, so that the upside of this was that uh, in situations where we're trying to lose fat, if we take it to a more a very generic you know, thing that everybody is interested in, well, as long as the carbohydrate intake is prevalent or high, the oxidation of fat is going to be completely shut off. And that, uh, and even in cases like exercise, where the uh, goal is to be oxidizing fat, it's only at a low level of, of activity that you get a very significant contribution of fat oxidation because as the intensity of exercise goes up, the oxidation of glucose becomes more prominent and that inhibits the fatty acid oxidation. So at higher levels of exercise, uh, the oxidation of fatty acid actually goes down as compared to where it was in the uh, lighter exercise. And this kind of led in the popular, th that sort of fundamental uh, observation. Now, the paper that specifically described that in exercise has been cited over 4,000 times. And, and it really was the foundation for the concept of the fat burning zone that you get, you know, like if you get on the elliptical, you'll see if you're working in the fat burning zone and it's usually well below the uh, uh, highest intensity. And, and I think it did kind of change people's perspective on exercise to, for weight control because what it showed was that to maximize fatty acid oxidation, you really didn't need to have a uh, tremendously high exertion, but rather the length of time and at a low level of, of, of energy expenditure more directly uh, fueled the oxidation of fat. And I think more generally, I think in the context of diabetes, the idea that um, increased fatty acid availability was causing insulin resistance and increase in blood glucose turned out to really be not the case at all. And that, there, that has been followed through with studies for the last 20 years, 30 years since those initial studies that we did. And the, the, the whole concept of how the blood glucose level is uh, controlled, I think, is... Uh, been affected by the realization that the availability of glucose, not fatty acids, are really what dictates substrate metabolism. And that's why we sort of coined it the glucose fatty acid cycle reverse, because it, it actually works the exact opposite of the... Uh, uh. And parenthetically, uh, Eric Newsom, who that work was his, the original glucose fatty acid cycle was his PhD thesis. I got to know him quite well, really, not through academics, but because we were both marathon runners. And... Uh, he ultimately conceded that he had it wrong. So uh, unfortunately, he's deceased now, and he never really published that. But I can tell you that he he agreed with the fact that really the, in, in the physical and, and I think that the real take-home message is that the physiology in human subjects dictated exactly the opposite response of what was dictated by measurement of enzyme activity and presuming that that related to some sort of metabolic flux in vivo. So uh, I think that we could take a broader picture of that whole thing with the glucose fatty acid cycle and realize that that using in vivo, uh, you know, in intact human subjects, that even though it was much less invasive procedures are possible, nonetheless, that it really has to be done in human subjects because uh, that's really the only circumstance in which you really get a true picture of what the metabolic control mechanisms are. Yeah. And I think what was so helpful in 
Well, first of all, thank you so much for that history. Again, you are the the person that really this came out of your lab. And this understanding, which I think is so fascinating, is that there's this conversation about how we're eating too much fat. And maybe it's not that it's an excess uh, fat issue or excess glucose issue. Potentially, is it an excess calorie issue? Yeah, I think that's a that's absolutely a, a take home message of the uh, of of what I've just sort of said in, in kind of a deep dive. The point is that uh, that whether it's carbohydrate or fat, the caloric balance is really the dictator of uh, whether you have a positive energy balance or negative energy balance, and there's really no escaping that. And whether it's fat or carbohydrate, it really doesn't make a, a difference. And I think that that has that has led to a lot of misconceptions is the idea that a low-fat diet is going to be beneficial. If it's a high-carbohydrate diet, realize that the high-carbohydrate is going to inhibit fatty acid oxidation. So, uh, you know, it's just, it all comes out in the wash. It's just how many calories you eat, whether it's carbohydrate or fat, that's going to be the predominant factor in energy balance. I'm so glad that you brought that up because my next question was, well, now how do we place the Dean Ornish diet. So Dean Ornish is 10% fat versus a ketogenic style diet. Where where does all of this kind of fit into health? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I think the thing that, that uh, it's kind of like people ask, what's the best exercise? And the answer is really whatever you'll do. And I think that uh, when we just discuss the fact that the caloric balance is really the bottom line, that these different diets are just uh, different ways to approach eating so that uh, people might find it tolerable to live in a hypocaloric state because it's really not a natural physiological state to be eating less calories than you're burning. And it, people have a really tough time staying with that. And uh, the the ultimate, whether whatever the type of diet is, the ultimate deciding factor in its effectiveness is the... Uh, caloric balance. That being said, though, I think there's another sort of subcomponent that we want to think about, and it, it, it really uh, sort of touches on the third issue that you pointed out at the beginning, and that is the role of muscle and, and metabolic regulation beyond just physical function, because I think that, at the, well, the energy balance is the key thing. Realize that the uh, the muscle protein is in a constant state of, of turnover, meaning synthesis and breakdown is occurring constantly. And there's an energy cost of that turnover, which is about one third of the total resting energy expenditure. So that as if you have a large muscle mass, large active muscle mass, the metabolic expenditure of that protein turnover is going to contribute to the energy uh, uh, use in the individual so that the energy balance will be helped not only by just the calories during exercise, but uh, just the fact that you have a larger muscle mass then the energy expenditure just related to the basal turnover of that protein will contribute to an energy expenditure side of the equation. So that within the context of, of diets that promote either, use of either fat or carbohydrate, really the crucial factor is how much protein is in the diet that uh, gives a higher rate of protein turnover and energy expenditure in response to the meal intake, as well as maintaining a greater muscle mass, which will maintain a greater energy expenditure over time in the basal state and, and contribute to an energy balance over a long period of time. Um, when, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for talking about protein because we're definitely going to do that. When you talk about dietary protein, do you think 
and I have a handful of questions. Number one, how much protein do you recommend, do you think is necessary? Well, I've spent a lot of time over the past several years with uh, uh, working with the FAO, WHO on uh, uh, quantifying protein quality. And I think that the question of how much protein should you eat is really a subtopic, and that is that it makes a big difference what the type of protein is. And what we've been working on is developing and, and validating a system of, of evaluating protein quality that's dependent not only on the amount of protein you eat, but the specific nature of the protein, namely the profile and amount of essential amino acids in the protein, as well as how well it's digested. And, and uh, for example, wheat protein uh, is not a very high quality protein in the context of its uh, amino acid structure, but it's uh, content, but it's not that bad. But then when you couple the fact that only 50% of it is digested as true uh, amino acid uh, absorption, then you can see that it is a very weak protein as compared to a high quality protein such as whey protein or milk protein that not only has a better profile of essential amino acids, but also is digested faster. So, so keep in mind when I say that the, uh, the average intake of the uh, dietary protein is uh, the, the official recommendation is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram per day. But what people have forgotten about that recommendation is that that's of high quality protein, meaning that it's fully digested and has a profile of amino acids that is very beneficial. Uh, but in most circumstances, the uh, dietary intake of protein will be, uh, it will be beneficial to have a higher protein intake than that basal amount. The dietary requirement of protein or the RDA for protein is predicated on the amount of protein intake you need to avoid uh, avoid uh, deficiencies so that you don't start losing hair and uh, having other problems of protein deficiency if you eat 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram per day. That's a very low level of protein intake. And in fact, when we look at it in comparison to the American diet, most people are eating well in excess of that and yet still benefit from increasing their dietary protein intake. So at a very conservative level, I think that there's a general consensus that as you get older, you need to eat a higher rate of a higher level of protein intake, at least 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram per day. If you're using, if you're in a very, uh, uh, intense physical circumstance such as exercise or military training or anything that really requires a lot of physical activity, it will it will be, it will be uh, beneficial to eat a higher protein intake as well. Uh, we did a very a pretty large study in weight loss showing that uh, to maintain muscle mass and weight loss that you have to have at least 1.2 grams a kilogram uh, per day of dietary protein, which when you multiply it out, it presents a big problem in age and obesity because if you weigh 35 or 40, uh, uh, if you weigh, if you if you have a BMI of 35 or 40, you have so much body weight that the amount of protein necessary to uh, to maintain your muscle mass at 1.2 grams per kilogram per day will mean that it's almost impossible to lose weight because you're gonna have so many calories just to meet protein requirements that you can't can't maintain your, uh, uh, you can't uh, meet the caloric requirements of caloric restriction weight loss. And that's one of the big dilemmas of caloric restriction weight loss diets 
is that you can't really eat enough protein to have a great success in maintaining muscle mass. And so the most common, almost all diets result in some degree of loss of muscle mass. And then that kind of works against you because as your muscle mass goes down, your basal metabolism goes down and your amount of calories you eat to balance your energy expenditure actually goes down over time. So so all of it is, is a cycle that uh, really is a difficult challenge. And, and that's where the specific dietary intake of certain proteins that are high and essential amino acids that have direct uh, anabolic effects is really an important factor. Let's say an individual is looking to lose weight. They, uh, they're looking to lose weight. Their diet is higher in protein. Would it be difficult? So what is the way to say it? Basically, I'll just ask the, the question straight out. How difficult is it to gain weight on lean forms of dietary protein? Yeah, the loss of weight is very difficult to, uh, to accomplish without losing muscle as well. Uh, the biggest example and, and most controlled is bariatric surgery, where a uh, big study was done pooling data from many, many institutions and uh, maybe several hundred people. And the average uh, muscle, average loss of lean body mass was uh, something like 27 kilograms. So that it's really a challenge to lose weight without losing muscle mass. And the idea of doing it with a high-protein diet is that you're going to uh, uh, reduce the rate of muscle loss, and, and then that will have a lot of beneficial effects. And so it's the best you can do. If you're going to try to lose weight with a diet, a high-protein diet is clearly the best route to, to accomplish that with. That being said, it's a challenge because, as I said, when you have a high-protein diet, that doesn't leave much room for the calories, the other calories that you tend to eat in your diet. So that's why things like the Atkins diet, you know, it's, 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 you, if you eat that much protein, you get calories come along with it because of the content and food products. And it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And I think that, I think people are finding this, that it's very difficult. It's not any newsflash. It's very difficult to sustain weight loss with caloric restriction because, uh, you lose muscle mass, and as you lose muscle mass, your metabolic rate goes down, and the amount of calories you can eat in a day to maintain energy balance goes down. So that uh, you know it's it's really tough. But the best you can do is a high protein diet. But I just think it's necessary to appreciate that really, you know, that's kind of no matter what you do, it's it's kind of closing the barn door after the horse got out. And, and you know, everybody's interested in weight loss, but what we really should be more focused on is preventing weight gain because that's we're still at a point in the dietary balance that we can accomplish that goal. Uh, the weight loss has proven to be a real challenge. This, you know, when you're talking about preventing weight gain, this paper, The Underappreciated Role of Muscle, you started talking about muscle decades before people even thought about it. You know, everyone has been focused on adiposity for decades. Why muscle? Why did you write that paper, The Underappreciated Role of Muscle? Well, I think we think about muscle uh, entirely in terms of physical performance. And, uh, and yet, muscle plays a key metabolic role in a lot of respects. Uh, there are a lot of tissues in the body that just can't, uh, well, 
all proteins in the body are in a continuous state of turnover, meaning they're being broken down and replaced by newer, better functioning proteins. And this process of protein turnover causes energy, uh, requires energy that is responsible for the basic metabolic rate. And uh, a lot of these tissues that are constantly breaking down their protein and regenerating it can't afford to lose mass. You can't afford to lose that much of your heart muscle. You can't afford to lose your skin. These certain tissues and organs are really dependent on a constant supply of amino acids to uh, maintain their, their mass and function. And yet, that's not the way we live. We eat dinner at night. We might be 15 to 20 hours before any more protein is ingested the next day. So we have a period, a long period of time with no amino acids coming into the blood from the diet. And the amino acids are maintained at the normal level by the result of net protein breakdown. So that the protein in muscle really serves as the reservoir to provide the precursors for these other tissues and organs that can't afford to go any significant period of time. And in fact, it's so striking that that even after two to three weeks of total starvation, the plasma amino acid levels are still maintained. Uh, in the uh, Belfast studies where the Irish hunger strikers were uh, asking to have their blood measured every day just as hope that some scientific benefit would come out of their sacrifice of starving themselves to death. And the most striking aspect of those studies was after 40 days of starvation was the first time that the blood levels of, of amino acids started to drop. And once that the muscle had been so depleted that they couldn't maintain, the breakdown of muscle protein was too depleted to maintain normal blood levels of amino acids for things like the heart and brain to, to utilize for protein synthesis. That was the time at which they died. And, you know, obviously we don't go to that extreme in our daily lives, but it may be at least 20 hours between protein intake and a person's daily activity. And so the muscle mass is important in being able to provide those amino acids that have to be used by tissues to, uh, to actually maintain their function, even in the absence of dietary intake of protein or amino acids. Which would then lead us to the, the conversation about dietary protein and dietary protein distribution. What are some of your thoughts on dietary protein distribution? Well, we tried hard. To, the idea is that uh, that there's only a certain amount of protein synthesis that can be generated in any particular meal, and uh, it, it it does make sense. But the it's been a tough concept to prove. the uh, The idea would be that you'd be better off eating 30 grams of protein with each meal than eating a low protein breakfast and low protein lunch and a lot higher amount at dinner time. I think that uh, in terms of protein synthesis, there is that there's a pretty good basis for that theory. Uh, in terms of the total gain of muscle of protein, if you take into account the breakdown effect as well, what we found was that up to a certain level, the primary action of dietary intake of protein is to stimulate protein synthesis. But then as you go, there's a certain limit to that and, and People have put that around 30 grams of protein, but I think it depends a lot on what else is in the meal and what type of protein you eat. But let's just say 30 grams of protein maximizes protein synthesis. But as you go to higher levels of protein intake in the meal, protein breakdown begins to be inhibited. And so the gain in body protein can still be augmented beyond that amount of, of dietary protein by suppression of protein breakdown. So it depends what your goal is. Uh, 
the uh, the argument is that slowing slowing protein breakdown down is not really advantageous because the uh, turnover of proteins, as I said, is how the older ones are broken down and, and they're renewed with better functioning proteins. And that's not going to occur by virtue of a suppression of breakdown. So the, the net gain of, of protein is not really dependent on the pattern of eating, but it may well be that, and there's a good theoretical basis still for assuming that by the better distribution throughout the day that you maintain a higher synthetic rate and, that, and a greater functionality of the protein turnover. So, so I'd say the jury is still out on that. It's not been as, it was a theory that was very attractive when it was first put out and it's been a challenge to directly confirm it, but I think there's still some merit and uh, some, some aspects of it that are worth thinking about. I think just common sense tells us that eating some protein at all meals is going to, that kind of distribution is going to be more effective than uh, eating most of your protein at dinner, which is the general pattern that people follow. It's just been a little bit difficult to prove uh, conclusively that it really makes a difference. Yeah. Um, I Don was also talking about that as well. What about the first meal? So most of the studies are done at breakfast as opposed to a lunch or dinner meal as it relates to protein intake, protein distribution. Why is that? Well, it's purely a methodological thing. And that is you can have a period of a real basal state and then you give the meal and you get a response over the next several hours. The problem with looking at lunch and dinner is that the what you had for breakfast will affect the response to lunch because the response will, the, the blood levels of some of the things you've eaten will still be elevated. And then when you eat for lunch and when you ate lunch, it will be affected, uh, will have an impact on dinner. Uh, but, but I think it does have an, and it does have an impact. Uh, and it's difficult to uh, sometimes sort out what, it, what it's due to, because uh, we did a study a few years ago, which showed that eating the same diet uh, at 6 p.m. or at 10 p.m. had a significant difference in terms of the metabolic response overnight during sleep. So that the, uh, uh, the eating a diet late at night had, uh, uh, as I said, a different metabolic response than eating it earlier, which could be due to the fact that you're closer to sleeping or it could be due to the fact that the previous breakfast and lunch are still having an impact on the, dip, this, the position of the uh, of the dinner so that uh so i think it's a methodological thing but it's an important point that you mentioned and and all our studies are done in the morning because it's it's the most convenient time we don't have any uh impact of the previous meals but we know for example we did a study several years back Stu phillips did this study in our lab and that was doing an exercise study and showing that the effect of the exercise the anabolic effect of amino acids after exercise was still enhanced two days after the exercise. So you get this building up a compounding of the effects of one meal and the next. That, and uh, it becomes, we, we've tried to circumvent this more recently by focusing on at least one day or even three days total protein turnover. But it's, it's a real challenge because uh, you got a lot of permutations of, uh, diets and timings and amount at each meal and everything to deal with, which uh, uh, makes it a, a... It is challenging. You know, and you're bringing up a, a really good point. I just want to highlight like it for the listeners. Studies. 
the, some of the, this conversation is a bit technical, but it's it's really important. Just this concept that many of the studies are done uh, for in the morning because of that basal basal rate where there's no influence uh, directly of of food the night before. The other thing that I think is really important to point out is that. Uh, protein research, muscle research is definitely very challenging. The The metabolic dynamic of the human is very challenging. It's interesting because as individuals age, it seems as if the you know, um, protein requirements go up, anabolic resistance potentially happens, and there's a whole host of, of things. What role does exercise play? in the relationship of um, substrate utilization. Oftentimes people think about aerobic activity and carbohydrates, but what about aerobic activity and protein? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the exercise is the most effective way to stimulate this process of breakdown of, of, of amino acids and proteins that uh, are not functioning as effectively as 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 when they're new and replacing those with newer proteins. And so this concept of protein turnover and acceleration of protein turnover is really the key thing that, that degenerates as we get older. The muscle mass goes down. A lot of people have paid most attention to that, but really it's this functionality of the muscle as you get older that matters. As you get older, the amount of muscle you have is much less concerned to most people than whether you can actually walk out to the mailbox and get the mail. And, uh, and so... So I think that uh, uh, the exercise is really the most effective way to stimulate this process. Eating adequate, high-quality protein will amplify the response. So that uh, the it's not just an added effect. The effect, the effect of exercise, the beneficial effect of exercise, aerobic exercise, or anabolic or uh, weightlifting, uh, has an acute effect, which really helps the muscle. But there has to be an increased supply of, of amino acids from muscle, uh, from from dietary fat, uh, protein rather, to uh, to pro provide the building blocks to replace the proteins that are broken down at, at an accelerated rate, so that there's an interaction that when you do the exercise and add high quality protein intake, you get a bigger response than in the individual effect of either one alone. The exercise has a beneficial effect, but the high protein does as well because of the fact that you got to have and that would building blocks to make the new protein, and that's what the dietary protein provides. So that so so you really need both. And unfortunately, as people get older, for whatever reason, dietary patterns indicate that people tend to eat less high quality protein as they get older, which is a a big mistake. And it's just about equal in problems to uh, cutting down the exercise, both of which are important and both work together synergistically. Special thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. I would love with all this talk to highlight their essential amino acid mix. How do you use essential amino acids? Well, if your diet is lower in protein, if you're having a meal that is also lower in protein, you can use essential amino acids to help augment that. First Form has a whole host of flavors of this product, whether it's Blood Orange or Berry Blast or Lemon Drop. If you want to get fancy, then you can do pineapple, orange, banana, whatever it is that you choose. Uh, essential amino acids can be very valuable. Basically, a scoop of essential amino acids with a lower protein meal can help increase 
the protein value of that meal. It's good for muscle protein synthesis, for energy, for focus, for recovery. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion, firstform, P-H-O-R-M.com slash Dr. Lion, and you can try whichever flavor that you like. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. If you guys are listeners to this podcast, then you know how much I love Inside Tracker. We all age at different speeds. And one of the ways that you can tell how you're aging is really how does your blood work look? And that is why I love Inside Tracker. You can head on over to inside, like inside your body.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off. Inside Tracker was created by scientists in aging, genetics, biometrics. It looks at your blood, your DNA, fitness tracking data, really to identify where you need improvement. Because again, we all age, but we don't have to grow old, right? You can age, but you don't have to grow old. And the only way that you are going to determine what is going on in your body is if you test it. And Inside Tracker is making great strides. They just added in the biomarker ApoB, which is critical for heart health, as well as three hormone markers that are especially important for addressing symptoms related to aging. They also have insulin, and that is a key biomarker for energy, muscle health, chronic disease. And for a limited time only, you get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Yeah, especially when this is the biggest challenge, I think, when people are talking about going plant-based is it's not the younger individuals per se that it impacts. It's really the older individuals because if they're getting this information and they're hearing these messages to cut back high-quality protein, I worry about their ability to uh, address protein turnover uh, not necessarily they would feel it, but over a period of time, um, thinking about how they'll be able to recover and just muscle quality. And as their appetite decreases, if they're going to uh, reduce high quality protein, then the protein sources that they're going to pull upon and rely on are going to have uh, a lot more carbohydrates, slower digestibility, poor digestibility. It's just going to become a real problem. Well, what you said is just right on the money, and I think that that's what is underappreciated. I think that people, if you you know, being working at a center for aging, I have a lot of I've had a lot of impact or influence by people just asking them about their diet and what they're trying to accomplish, and and that's certainly the most common thought is that I'm cutting down uh, red meat intake for health purposes, and and then you ask, well, what is it about the red meat that that the, well, it's just what we're told, that we should be eating less. But the problem, like you said, is that there's aspects that people don't appreciate. For one, if you maintain the same protein intake of the plant-based diet, you're going to eat many more calories and mostly in the form of carbohydrate. And as you get old, the insulin resistance is an issue which is amplified by high carbohydrate intake. So that the plant-based diet really has... Uh, potential to have detrimental effects, not only not to be beneficial health uh, in terms of health, but uh, not not only not beneficial, but actually detrimental to a more well-balanced diet. I think that the other thing that is important to realize is that uh, eating is, 
you know, totally non-physiological perspective, but eating is an important function for older people. Because as your world kind of narrows, uh, having meals and eating with other people and uh, enjoying eating and so forth is a uh, uh, one of the main pleasures that older people have. And, uh, you know, this notion that we should be forcing them to eat. <laughs> I say them as if it doesn't include me. But, uh, uh, but yeah. Uh, but the point is that, uh, you know, to make dietary sacrifices uh, that aren't even rational, but, but even if they are, unless you really can document that this is going to make a major impact uh, on people's lives as they get older, then you should really think twice about recommendations of it but but I do think that the heart of what you're saying is you know people that are young that live on a plant-based diet will point to what they do and say well there's no problem and I think what what we have to appreciate is there's metabolic flexibility as you're younger that enables you really to to make do with almost anything and then as you get older that becomes more and more restricted and when you get it over 65 or 70 it becomes a real limitation that the uh exact nature of the dietary intake is becomes very important. And that's why we really should be paying more attention to what the health consequences of some of the recommendations that are out there. Yeah, the unintended consequences of reducing high quality protein for an aging population or a sick population, I think is going to be devastating. And ultimately, if I was a betting woman, I would say we're going to have an epidemic of sarcopenia and osteoporosis like we have never seen. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, people are living longer, but the problem is that, uh, that with, with, as you said, with loss of muscle mass and, and bone strength, the incidence of crippling diseases and uh, lack of independence is going to become much more important. Yes. And, you know, I'm just going to mention this, this one uh, point is that it's not even just all about the macronutrient protein, but there's low molec- molecular weight um, bioactive compounds like creatine and carnosine, and then of course vitamins and minerals, which um, the nutrient density aspect of high quality protein is critical. Um, so there's that, which moves us into exercise. Not exactly, but we're going to go right into exercise as it relates to fuels for exercise, because this is definitely within your strike zone of um, work that you've done a lot of as it relates to, you know, oftentimes people who do aerobic activity always think that they need carbohydrates may be true, but what about their protein need? Yeah, I think that uh, the, the thing that's been, <clears throat> the, the general concept has long been that it uh, doesn't matter uh, how much protein you eat because uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, that you really don't need much protein. And if you look at the top athletes, endurance athletes, they don't need much protein. And, and what, what people miss is that uh, the caloric requirement of world-class endurance training, maybe five to six, even 8,000 calories a day, so that even if you eat a very low-calorie diet, a low-protein diet, that you're still eating a whole lot of protein. And uh, the Kenyan runners that eat this gruel for their main substance have been cited as though they look at how well they do on a low protein diet. And if you look at the actual amount of protein they eat, it's over two grams of protein per kilogram per day because they eat so much. They're using five or 6,000 calories a day. So that, uh, so that 
it's it's no it's nothing new to advocate that you have to have a high quality protein as a component of the dietary intake, particularly if we're not world class athletes. There may be certain sports that you want to have uh, sort of an unusual diet in terms of maximizing performance relative to body weight or something. But for most people that are just recreational athletes, the important the whole benefit of the exercise is more on the quality of muscle and its action in metabolic regulation and, uh, and, and its function physically than is the case with uh, the extra calories because the problem with exercise, exercise as a caloric uh, for, for purely for weight loss is that you definitely have your appetite stimulated by doing aerobic exercise. So, you know, if you have the willpower to both do the exercise and not eat as much, then that will enhance your rate of loss, certainly, but that becomes, can be harder than, than it seems. So I think the main thing we need to consider in, in, uh, in supplying the energy for exercise is that uh, dietary protein should be a, de- a central part of the dietary intake. Uh, high carbohydrate is particularly helpful in, in, in exercises where you're really depleting your glycogen stores, but realize that that's really extensive exercise and most people are not even touching their muscle glycogen stores. So the what would be an example of exercise that would deplete muscle glycogen? Well, working at about 70 or 80% of max for at least an hour. And it could be even more than that. Uh, in a marathon, probably with a well-trained subject, it may be as long as an hour and a half of racing before the muscle glycogen is depleted. So that uh, if you look at the uh, uh, breakdown of substrate metabolism during exercise, at 50% of maximal effort, you're really not using much muscle glycogen at all. It's only when you start getting really high intensity exercise that you start using uh, uh, the muscle glycogen. And most people that aren't highly trained can't really sustain that you know a high level of intensity for very long. So that uh, so that I think that the concept of of lots of carbs has been overstated. I think that the most important thing is to maintain a balanced diet with a a healthy amount of high quality protein as a component of the diet with the aerobic exercise. What role does leucine play in um, substrate utilization in aerobic exercise? Well, leucine is the specific amino acid that is uh, cited to have not only importance with regard to the fact that it's the most uh, abundant essential amino acid in muscle protein, but also that it may have in a lot of circumstances, regulatory role beyond just its component of muscle protein. So that uh, dietary intake of proteins that have a high proportion of leucine may uh, stimulate the whole molecular mechanism involved in the activation of the synthetic process. So that leucine as a specific component of dietary protein may be able to actually enhance the metabolic response more than just as the fact that you're supplying a component of protein, but that it plays a metabolic regulatory role. Keeping in mind, though, that the, uh, that the amount of protein that needs to be eaten to get the plasma level of leucine up high enough to exert this regulatory role is pretty significant. So that this is why as you get to a higher level of protein intake, you start seeing maybe unexpectedly disproportionate beneficial effects because now you're getting up to the level of intake where the blood levels of amino acids, including leucine, get high enough to activate the whole molecular uh, 
process of initiation of protein synthesis, which which at low levels of protein intake really aren't activated by dietary protein intake. This all, I would say, probably lends itself to distribution being important. Yeah, well, I think it, I think it's definitely uh, uh, the idea that if you hit that level three times in a day, that you're going to activate protein synthesis. You got to eat a fair amount to get it. If you have a small amount of, of dietary protein for breakfast, you're not activating any kind of uh, activation of uh, uh, the whole molecular process supporting protein synthesis because the amount of leucine in the diet is just not high enough to activate that process. Yes, uh, that uh, definitely makes sense. And arguably, I always wonder, is the middle meal very important because uh, potentially initiation factors are already up at that middle meal? But the you know clinically, what we do in our clinic is that first and last meal are very relevant. And then the middle meal, we think, okay, could it be an even distribution? Yes, uh, potentially because that allows for uh, mitigating hunger and all the things that you have said. What is the role of branch chain amino acids as a supplement? Well, I think that uh, that uh, the branch chain amino acids are important. Uh, really, the leucine is the one that has uh, been demonstrated to have some specific regulatory roles. But the, uh, uh, the, the metabolism or breakdown of, of dietary leucine is, uh, is, uh, occurs because of the activity of an enzyme, which also uh, breaks down and oxidizes the isoleucine and valine, the other two branched-chain amino acids. So, so when you provide amino acid, uh, leucine alone, that you can have a deficiency in both isoleucine and valine because you're activating the oxidation of all of them. So... The concept came across to provide all three branched-chain amino acids and get the, the stimulatory effect due to leucine and not prevent a, d- develop a deficiency in the other branched-chain amino acids. The shortcoming of this approach in humans has been that that you really need some of the other, the, all the rest of the essential amino acids as well, that if you activate the process of initiation of synthesis with leucine, that uh, you you have to the only increase in synthesis you can get is a more re- efficient reutilization of what amino acids are available for breakdown, so that when combined with the other essential amino acids as exogenous precursors, then then the combination of the BCAs and the other essential amino acids becomes more effective than just the branched chain amino acids alone. Yeah, I there's a you did a, a really great. A paper. I don't know how long ago it was, but it really talked about how there was no utilization for branched-chain amino acids as a dietary supplement, uh, which... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... I wouldn't say no utilization. I think that it's, it's, it's an important component, but very limited without uh, extra amino acids in the diet, because if you just think about it, essential amino acids are very effectively utilized to begin with. So all, and that's all you got to uh, uh, to be as precursors for new protein synthesis. It's going to be quite limited. But then, if you combine those amino acids with other essential amino acids, a high proportion can be particularly useful in aging or other anabolic resistant states. So, I think it's important to to recognize that my take on that was not that there's no value. 
but only that the value of the BCAs alone or leucine alone is quite limited as compared to utilization of a balanced mixture that has the BCAs in it as a prominent component, but also all the other essentials as well. Well, in terms of supplementation, branch chain, what I'm hearing you say is that branched-chain amino acids can be helpful if someone is eating potentially a lower-protein diet as long as all the essential amino acids are available. So you wouldn't have a BCAA drink on its own or a branched-chain amino acid mix on its own. You would have it with a complete protein, essentially. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I think in that circumstance, I don't know the extent to which that's been demonstrated, but I think that in theory, that's the case. The the limitation with what you proposed there is just the timing, that the free amino acids are absorbed so rapidly that as compared to the dietary protein that, that it really, what you said makes sense, but it hasn't really been demonstrated to be true. Mm-hmm. And I think before I was really agreed to, to what you said, I'd have to see data demonstrating that it made a difference. Because uh, you get a spike in the BCAs with the essential, with the uh, dietary supplement of the free amino acids, and it's back down to a low level when the slow rise of the uh, amino acids from the dietary protein occurs. So I think it, I think it should work. Uh, we've done a study showing that a balanced mixture of essential amino acids can amplify the effect of dietary protein quite well. So I think probably true with this with the BCAs, but you're still going to be limited in the end of the day by, uh, you're going to be limited by the availability of all the essential amino acids. So I think that by itself, I think there's little doubt that the BCA supplementation is limited. Uh, but in combination with the meal or dietary protein supplement may still have a place as an effective anabolic agent. Do you think that one thing or the other um so let me ask it this way. Would whole foods be better or is there a place for an essential amino acid mixture? Which And when would that be beneficial? Well, actually, I think that the whole foods are, are crucial, but the, that the uh, amino acid supplementation has a, a, a quite a different response because Amino acid, free amino acids are absorbed directly. There's no digestion involved. So that you have 100% absorption and also that the composition can be controlled to whatever you want it to be for whatever the optimal circumstance is. So that uh, the spike in the concentrations of amino acids in, in the blood from a free amino acid t- supplement reach a peak many way before you get with the dietary protein and also at a much higher level. So you can provide a dietary supplement that will accomplish certain metabolic goals through its uh, both the speed of absorption as well as the composition. We'll have specific metabolic targets, uh, which are not really feasible with a dietary protein that comes in much slower and, and you can't change the composition of a dietary protein. So uh, in that light, I have patents on, I think, 14 different formulations that, at least in theory, are targeting specific metabolic effects or, or actions that are benefited by having a particular formulation, not only just the quantity of essential amino acids, but for example, we have a, a formulation for reducing liver fat that is that blocks the methionine uptake in the liver by uh, competitive transport. So, uh, 
we couldn't do this with a uh, dietary protein because of the fact that all dietary protein has methionine in it. It's the first amino acid in, uh, in the translation of uh, mRNA. So you'll never have a diet that's deficient in, in methionine, but you can make a formulation of essential amino acids that is deficient in that specific amino acid in order to, to get a selective reduction in the activity relative to others. So so they're kind of different things. You know, I, I think that while I've been involved in developing different amino acid supplements, I never would want to lose the focus on on the requirement or necessity of having a well-balanced dietary intake of high-quality proteins. The two things are actually a little bit separate uh, in, in how what their mechanism of action is. That's very interesting to think that you can create different amino acid mixtures for very specific things, something like uh, methionine, you know, which, which sounds as if it's a methionine restriction, which would model a, say, vegan-style diet. And to think that there are potentially other kinds of uh, formulas or formulations would be pretty powerful and interesting to see. You know, you've spoken about uh, central fatigue central fatigue hypothesis as it relates to um, whether it's a depletion of amino acids. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's a little bit uh, right along the line of of another example of how the uh, formulation can make a difference because the feeling of alertness and fatigue is governed to a significant extent by the neurotransmitters of dopamine and serotonin in in the brain both of which are produced from essential amino acids. The, uh, the uh, dopamine is produced from tyrosine, which is a derivative of phenylalanine, and the uh, uh, serotonin is, uh, is derived from the metabolism of tryptophan. So by providing a... Uh, the idea is that as you get fatigued, that the branched amino acids are oxidized at a faster rate during intensive long-term exercise, so you start getting depletion in the branched chain amino acids relative to the tryptophan so that the dopamine level drops relative to the serotonin and you, your brain tells you you're tired even though your muscles may still have something left. So the idea is to, uh, act, to competitively inhibit the tryptophan uptake by giving a formulation that's high in the branched chain amino acids and, and uh, phenylalanine, which are all transported into the brain by the same transporter as the, as the tryptophan, but uh, you provide all of those and you don't have any tryptophan, you restore the normal ratio of the, of the uh, branch chain and large chain uh, amino acids relative to tryptophan, and this will restore the balance between dopamine and uh, serotonin, which not only will help prolong exercise, but it will actually give you greater cognitive capacity and kind of enthusiasm for getting started with the workout as well. So that uh, so it's another example where there's a specific formulation which isn't designed uh, particularly to promote protein synthesis so much as the uh, production of neurotransmitters, which are also functions of essential amino acid in- intake. So do, these, um, so do these large neutral amino acids cross the, br- the blood-brain barrier? Yeah, that's the... Uh, that, that's the whole point, that they're transported by a specific transporter. And, and all of them, tryptophan, phenylalanine, uh, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, are all transported by the same transporter across the blood-brain barrier into the brain. 
so that we can, if you, and there's a limited amount of them, so that if you give a high amount of one, you're going to limit the transport of the other because uh, there's just not enough transporters available to, to get them all into the brain. So that's sort of the general principle that by giving a, a balance that favors the dopamine precursors that you'll continue activation of enthusiasm or lack of mental fatigue. And uh, of course, this is a tough one to show. I mean, beyond the theory, because of the fact that, uh, you know, people quit exercise for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, it's not just uh, because your uh, dopamine level is dropped, but your legs can feel tired and or just you just don't feel like going on. The, uh, the idea, though, is that uh, by optimizing the dopamine to serotonin ratio, that you can, can improve th this. Uh, and it's the same thing in, in a different circumstance with uh, delirium, which is in short-term uh, cases in, in hospitals where people have a disruption of their normal amino acid levels. And Again, this is a short-term response to a complete alteration of the balance between dopamine and serotonin, and, and that's another area in which the uh, provision of, of a formulation heavy in uh, the, the branched-chain amino acids that are precursors to the dopamine is much more important than, than and blocking the uptake of tryptophan, which is uh, the serotonin precursor. Delirium. And this will help reduce the incidence of... of uh, of of uh, delirium, so it's it's a, it's there, there are just a lot of different applications that are possible. I think the thing that's most important to recognize is that this is a really rapidly growing field. That uh, I described the first use of these amino acid essential amino acid supplement in like about 2000, and in 2015, just of what I found, there are almost 150 clinical trials worldwide in essential amino acids that have all shown some sort of positive effect. So it's a growing field and we'll see where it goes, which it's very difficult. Uh, one of the questions is, is, is it really make a difference, which what your exact formulation is? And of course, those are difficult questions to answer because there's, you know, they're, you're in intact humans and there are a lot of variables and so forth. So that as more studies are done, I think we'll learn a lot more about the applications and the limits of, uh, dietary essential amino acid supplements, but I think we can be pretty confident that there'll be a place for them in terms of nutritional uh, uh, nutritional guidance, but uh, that they play a different role than dietary protein and that uh, that there's, there's both a limitation to their utility, but also an advantage that can't be achieved through dietary protein alone. It'll be interesting to see if someone will be able to, you know, they have tests where you can look at blood levels of amino acids, but that doesn't necessarily translate because that's not, depending on the amino acid, that's not where its primary location is. Um, it, so I don't know if... Yeah. Yeah, well, we know that it's maintained pretty constant. So yes. that's, it makes so the interpretation... absolutely different. the point. I think it was Fernstrom that did a lot of some of the earlier research. Is that true? And... Uh, tryptophan and uh, serotonin. So yes. you guys listening are, are ready to nerd out on some of that stuff. But Fernstrom um, did some of these this early work. Yeah, that was done way back in the 1970s. Yeah. He didn't really ever uh, capitalize on it and coming up with a formulation that people could, uh, could benefit from. But uh, the concept definitely originated with him.
I was very interested in it because I, I had been thinking a lot about, is there a way in which we can create a nutritional plan that leverages some of these various amino acid profiles? But I, I finally gave up in the way that not necessarily, and it, it's very difficult. Like you said, there are limitations to leveraging whole foods versus very specific amino acids and what is that utility and, and how can that be utilized? And then I would say that the next question would be, well, what about dosing? For example, what would the appropriate dose be to impact dopamine levels uh, a certain amount? I, have you thought about that? Well, it's a difficult question because the end product of the uh, of the uh, dopamine and, and serotonin is in the bl- in the brain. Uh, there's something called the DAT scan now, which is uh, scans for intracellular uh, dopamine in the brain using the CAT scan. And over long term, like months of treatment, it's possible you can see an effect. This approach is used for diagnosing uh, dementia and Alzheimer's now. Uh, and that may be possible. It's just a real challenge because with muscle, we can take a biopsy and look at the intracellular uh concentrations and uh, rates of appearance and so forth. <clears throat> and there, we don't really know that there's a very direct relation between blood dopamine levels and, and the intramus- and intrabrain mus- levels so that, so that we're limited then to, to uh, performance outcomes, which, as I said, are, are touch and go because they're a little squishy in terms of how precise they are. <clears throat> so, uh, so it's it's been mostly uh, animal studies that have really uh, been the basis of this theory, and then as they extend to human use, uh, it's been more a matter of faith on the on the rationale provided from the animal studies than being able to directly measure effects because we can't really get inside the brain to measure uh, the endpoints we're working towards. Yeah, that would be that would be not ideal. Have you thought about certain foods, for example, that are unbalanced in their amino acids, like bone broth or collagen, things that are actually found in nature? Um, do you have any thoughts about where potentially that can play a role in in some of the factors that you're talking about? Yeah, I think that uh, the potential role. I think that we, what we're seeing with collagen is that there are some benefits that wouldn't be predicted from the composition of the collagen amino acid uh, structure. And the most likely explanation is that they have some uh, bioactive peptides resulting from the digestion that themselves have a direct regulatory role. Uh, That's all been proposed. Not much, uh, you know, and and I think that if that turns out to be true, then it opens the door for incorporating that kind of approach, whether it be dietary uh, collagen alone or uh, hydrolysates that uh, have the peptides, uh, in combination with other uh, formulations such as uh, essential amino acid formulation that would stimulate protein synthesis might be an avenue. But but there do seem to be benefits to collagen that uh, wouldn't be predicted. So I think that's an interesting one to keep an eye on. Hmm. Anything else? You know, there's mycoproteins and, uh, you know, they're trying to make proteins out of all different kinds of things. Do you think that there is anything else on the forefront? Well, uh, you know, I can really only speak to myself. I, you know, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, people are always looking for, for something. Uh, but 
you know, the field of protein nutrition is well over 100 years old. So you have to work pretty hard to come up with something that's completely novel, particularly just relying on dietary protein. So we'll see. Uh, it'll be exciting if it does. And I think that what I think that ultimately where we might be heading is combination of uh, therapies put together into the same kind of approach. But but it's all hinges on actual experimentation and, and real data, which unfortunately, a lot of what we deal with in this field is a theory without much substantiation. So, so I think we have to proceed with uh, optimism, but a little bit of caution as to relying on actual experimental data to make any conclusions. Well, I, I just want to thank you so much for your contribution to science. You have really impacted so many people. I know that you're up to all kinds of things. If you would love to share, we would love to hear it. Well, uh, I'm still still active at uh, University of Arkansas Medical School on a 30% basis, but most of my efforts have been uh, directed towards research projects to develop amino acid supplementations via the amino company, which I'm a founding uh, uh, founding uh, uh, owner of. So that uh, my comments on the amino acids I've, I've kept in a general sense so that I haven't been specifically touting anything that the amino company sells, but that's been a major focus of mine and been able to get quite a few NIH grants to uh, specifically develop uh, products to enhance uh, or target specific uh, uh, metabolic circumstances that can benefit from uh, from formulations that can't be duplicated with uh, with uh, normal dietary protein. But as I said, at the same time, I'm still quite involved in the fact that I'm in New Zealand most of the time. My associate, Paul Mon, who's the head of this uh, WHO-FAO program to develop the diet score, that's taken some of my time as well, because I think that that there's certainly a major role of dietary protein in uh, proper nutrition, a major role. And uh, so I'm trying to stay active in that aspect as well. Well, thank you so much for your time. We will link everything here. We'll link the Amino Company. And um, I don't know if you have a website, but if you do. Yeah, there is an Amino Company website. <laughs> yes, uh, you personally. And then if anyone is interested, they can Google you, do a PubMed search on you and publish a tremendous amount of research. And again, Dr. Bob Wolf, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Well, thanks. This has been really enjoyable. I, I may, we may have gotten too technical at times, but uh, you got me going on some things that I hadn't thought about for a while. So that was really fun. Well, my audience really, really likes the technical details. So um, thank you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.